0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Akil Baring. Akil is the Director of South Asia Initiatives at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Akil, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today. We'll start the way we always start the podcast, which is how did you get interested in South Asia policy? It actually happened by accident.
1: I mean, of course, my parents are Indian, so I grew up, I spent part of my childhood in India. And after college, I moved back there, kind of got interested in kind of the policy space, politics there. And I lived in Japan for a year where I worked with Japanese companies on advising them on market strategies for India. So after that experience, I kind of came back to DC and realized I want to kind of try to make my mark here. And I realized that I really liked politics of South Asia. It's fascinating. There's not much understanding of it. And I realized that it's, it's something that I can talk about really well. So I managed to get an internship at this firm, McCarthy Associates, where I worked with the South Asia team. They're kind of leading the research for them. And then really stepped it up when I got to Eurasia Group, which was my previous job. And that's really where I got to know more in depth the politics of the region and also the economic issues. And kind of that also introduced me to the world of Sri Lankan and Pakistani debt.
0: Yeah, so let's get into Sri Lanka a little bit. First, we're recording this on May 9th, and this story is moving quickly. So in case we say something that's going to change in a week, just know that this is when we're recording it. But just today, protesters lit the House of the Prime Minister on fire. What's causing the angst and what's driving people to these extremes? A lot of different issues. So Sri Lanka is
1: facing the worst economic crisis since independence in 1948. And there are a wide range of reasons for how Sri Lanka got here. But the main reason is they overloaded on foreign debt. So a common misconception is that Sri Lanka is heavily indebted to China and that they're stuck in the Chinese debt trap. That is not true. About 39% or so of their debt is to foreign investors. So international sovereign bondholders, they borrowed heavily from foreign investors to finance infrastructure that took place after the civil war ended. But unfortunately they did not make the necessary reforms to kind of bring in more revenue. They didn't open up to more private industry, and they took on way too much debt. And so ultimately, that debt became unsustainable. Now, the debt was teetering towards unsustainability before the COVID-19 pandemic, but then you had a series of policy decisions by the government, which exacerbated the crisis. So first, you President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, even after winning the presidential election by 10 percentage points over his challenger, he still implemented a VAT and income tax cut, which the IMF said caused a loss of revenue of about 2.4% of GDP. Then, of course, you had the COVID-19 pandemic, which shut down tourism, which is a major foreign exchange earner for Sri Lanka. It shut it down from April to November, but even after that, tourists didn't return back. You also had an ill-advised attempt to ban all non-organic fertilizer in order to save $200 million in foreign exchange. What happened then, though, is that that then hit the tea plantations, which is Sri Lanka's largest foreign export. So it was going to cost them about $600 million in exports. So you had a series of bad policy decisions, compounded by a fact that there was a refusal to believe that the debt was unsustainable. I think this was the fatal flaw, is that the former central bank governor, he was the acting finance minister, and he was one of the ones blocking Sri Lanka, approaching the IMF, or even talking with their creditors to restructure the debt. And now it's, it's way too late, is they have about a billion and a half in foreign exchange reserves, not enough to cover any sort of imports. They've had to rely on India for credit lines for fuel, food, medicines, etc. And people are fed up because the economic crisis is so bad that, I mean, there are power cuts lasting up to 13, 14 hours a day. food is hard to find on non-government shelves and there just is not fuel on the island.
2: In your mind, what responsibility do foreign investors bear for perhaps overloading Sri Lanka with debt that ultimately was unsustainable? Of course, the pandemic was unforeseeable in in many ways. But but was this a failure of the international banking system and capital markets writ large? Is it a failure of multilateral institutions like the IMF? I mean, it, it feels to me like some of these factors could have been foreseen or mitigated or something like that. But maybe the incentives aren't there in the financial system. I don't know. I'm curious how you think about it.
1: I think there's definitely a case to be made for that, is that if there were concerns about Sri Lanka's ability to repay the debt, why would you continue purchasing the debt? But then the responsibility is also on Sri Lanka to not issue said debt. So I think it's a double-edged sword there. I mean, like the investors, of course, if they're getting very good deals and the country is offering it, I see their perspective of, hey, if this country is offering it, we would be foolish not to take it. But at the same time, I think there's a responsibility to recognize that maybe they shouldn't be taking it because Sri Lanka clearly did not have the capacity to repay their debt. Now, same with the multilateral institutions. I mean, it's where the politics of the IMF really come into play. Because I think you've seen in Argentina, you've seen in Greece, you've seen even in Ukraine, a willingness to bend the rules when it suits political interests even Pakistan. I mean, the number of times Pakistan and Argentina have gone to the IMF, yet have never put in place the necessary reforms, yet Sri Lanka is being singled out here. I think there is a question there about like the responsibility of multilateral institutions. Now, Sri Lanka, of course, also did not qualify for the debt service suspension initiative because it graduated from low-income country to middle-income country. It may be back down in the low-income country status now. One thing that the IMF has been looking for from Sri Lanka... Is to simply begin negotiations with their creditors to say, "Hey, we're acting in good faith here. Can you do the same?" And I think that would be enough for the IMF. But Sri Lanka has yet to take that step.
2: So there have been weeks or maybe months of protests at this point, but it feels like everything is coming to a head right in the last week or so, and things are turning more violent, et cetera. Can you take us through what's happening on the ground right now, from what you can tell, from context you have there? So protests
1: have been peaceful. Let me make that clear, is that the protesters are exercising their right to protest. And you have a government that isn't fond of protests. And I think this is part of, part of the issue, is that you have a government that has really treated the country like their own personal inheritance. So the prime minister, Mahinda Rajapak, said he used to be the president. He won twice. He changed the constitution to run for a third time, but lost. Then, of course, you had the April 2019 Easter bombing attacks. And I think this is where one of the issues came, is that there is a question of how much did the Rajapaksas know about what was going to come? Because 10 days later or so, Gota launches his campaign for president. He wins by 10 points, then appoints his brother Mahinda as prime minister. Then you have Mahinda's son, Namal, as another minister. Then you have them changing the constitution to allow Basil Rajapaksa the former finance minister, also a brother who's a U.S. citizen, they changed the constitution so that he could enter parliament. The Rajapaksa family controlled about seventy-five percent of the budget, so you have that dynamic at play. You so you have protesters fed up with the nepotism angle, you have them fed up with the economic mismanagement, and the protests have been peaceful, but the police have been kind of shooting tear gas at protesters trying to disperse them. Now. It's a very fluid situation right now. So from my understanding, protesters were celebrating Mahinda's resignation. Pro-government mobs attacked them, including so one member of parliament. He attacked some of the peaceful protesters who then attacked his car. Depending on who you talk to, one version is that he fled to a building and then took his own life. But you have pro-government mobs antagonizing protesters. And protest is now retaliating. So not only have they pushed into Temple Trees, which is the home of the prime minister, and been dispersed with tear gas, they also attacked the Rajapaksa's ancestral family home. They set that afire. They set one of Mahinda's offices on fire. But at the same time, anti-government legislators have also been hospitalized. So it's tricky to say who's to blame. If I had to say right now, I think the protests have been peaceful. And there has been clear antagonism by pro-government supporters. But I think what's happening is you've got a very volatile situation that really can't be contained right now.
0: How strong was Sri Lanka's democracy headed into this, this latest round of sort of Rajapaksa rule? So 2015 was kind of the shifting point. So
1: Sri Lanka has a very strong executive presidency. And when Mahinda passed the 18th Amendment to allow him to run for the third term, but then he was defeated, and the legislators were able to pass the 19th Amendment, which swung the pendulum back towards a parliamentary democracy, so weaken the powers of the executive presidency and strengthen the role of parliament. So instead of the prime minister being the first minister, the prime minister was the head of government, essentially. And so things were looking good for Sri Lanka at that point, but then... The president, Metropole Siracena, did not get along with the prime minister, Ranil Singh. This attempt at a unity government failed, and this is where things really started to go off the rails, was in October 2018 with the constitutional crisis that happened there, where Siracena tried to sack Ranil as prime minister and appoint Mahinda as prime minister. That was not legal. It went against the constitution because the 19th amendment indicated that the president could not fire the prime minister, the prime minister had to resign. And the prime minister had not done that. So that was a test for Sri Lanka's democratic institutions. And it succeeded at that point. Ranul was, was reinstated as prime minister by the Supreme Court. And then he took the government into the Easter bombing attacks, where he had been left out of all of the discussions about uh, national security, etc., but i think 2018 2019 was the first real test of the democratic institutions after that though you've seen a return to a very strong executive presidency with the 20th amendment you've seen a capture of the institutions by the Rajapaksas and their supporters in the military also the handling of the economic crisis could it have been better if there was actually democratic debate in parliament or like a debate on whether to go to the imf take etc yes i think so so i think We had moved in the right direction, but after Gotha came to power, Sri Lanka started moving in the wrong direction.
0: This was the second time that you mentioned the the Easter bombing. Remind us of what what was the Easter bombing and why it became such a focal point for the most recent presidential election.
1: The Easter bombings took place in April twenty nineteen, and these were a series of attacks by. This is the first time this has happened in Sri Lanka. Typically, in Sri Lanka. The violence you saw during the Sri Lankan civil war was ethnic violence. It was between the Sinhalese and the Tamils. This was for the first time you saw religious violence. So this was Muslim attacks on Sinhalese and Muslim attacks on churches. And so there were three cities that were bombed, including hotels in Colombo. Now, why was this important? This is important for a few reasons. One, none of the Sri Lankan political elite were in Colombo at the time. So that has fed into conspiracy theories and there is some evidence of this, of how much they knew and whether or not they let this attack happen. The Indian embassy had provided intelligence to the Sri Lankan government saying that this attack is imminent, watch out for these people. But nothing happened of it. Ten days after this, Gotabaya Rajapaksa launched his campaign for president. Now, Gotabaya's reputation he was formerly the defense secretary when his brother Mahinda was president. They were in power at the end of the Sri Lankan civil war. Gota especially has a strong military background, but also has a very questionable background. His nickname during the civil war was the man with the white van because of the white vans coming to pick up Tamil activists and disappearing them. A number of journalists and Tamils were disappeared during this time and no one knows where they went or what happened to them. So Gota launches his campaign with a national security focus in April 2019, and the opposition at the time has not settled on a candidate. So he runs on a pro-Sinhalese nationalistic, defense-oriented political campaign that sees him win by 10 points in November 2019.
2: You mentioned food shortages earlier and I realize there's sort of soaring food prices, both because of debt-related issues and other factors. I would love to learn more about how you think food security plays into stability and conflict in the in the region more generally. And I know you've talked a little bit about the need, perhaps, for some sort of food working group, you know, at the quad level or something like that. But would love to hear more about that.
1: Food security, I think, is going to be one of the biggest challenges going forward for the region. I mean not only because of climate change issues. Climate change is already affecting India, for example. India was seeking to take advantage of the gap in the market left by Ukraine's exit by stepping up wheat production and exporting it more. But because of climate change and excessive heat in India, the crops are not able to be produced at the yields that the government was expecting. I mean, same in Pakistan. I mean, the price of wheat has soared in Pakistan. And food inflation in Pakistan has actually outpaced most of the subcontinent. Sri Lanka is the exception. I mean, Sri Lanka inflation has hit over 30 percent right now. It's really bad. Whereas in Pakistan, I mean, food inflation since 2019 has increased by 35 percent as compared to I think it's in the 20 percent for India and Bangladesh. So food security is a huge issue because one of the biggest political issues in South Asia as a whole is Citizens generally don't care about a lot, but if they can't afford to put food on the table, that's when protests start. And that's when governments start to get threatened by the protests. I mean, food inflation is one of the main reasons the opposition was able to topple the Imran Khan government. The worsening economy in Pakistan gave them the momentum they needed to form the Pakistani democratic movement, which eventually has turned into the Shabazz Sharif government similarly, I mean, in Sri Lanka, like the inability of the government to provide food for the citizens is one of the driving causes of the protests. India, I think, is the exception here is because the government has sought to control inflation a bit better than the other countries in the region. And it's also done well to fortress itself with foreign exchange reserves so that it can import food when needed.
0: So what's the actual solve for that? How do international organizations and the United States respond to what is becoming a global food crisis? So
1: one of the ideas I had, um, and this also came from when um, foreign minister Shankar met with, Indian foreign minister Shankar met with Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and they discussed food security. Now, food security, of course, in that context meant Sri Lanka because that's a huge concern of India. India's extended credit lines to Sri Lanka to purchase food. But one thing that I've thought is that you have the Quad Working Group, and the Quad is designed to present alternatives to China and the region. It's Australia, India, Japan, and the US. And while there are a number of working groups kind of on the theoretical side, so I mean 5G, semiconductors, supply chains, I think food security is something that could be a deliverable. Now, what does that mean? I think The U.S. has stepped up its donations to the Food and Agricultural Organization, but the U.S. Foreign Agricultural Service can provide donations of food to countries as authorized by Congress, if I'm not mistaken. So, what I was, so my idea here is that with the Quad, you can see where the gaps in food production are in countries that you want to help, and see, okay, does the U.S. have excess of this? Does India have? Does Australia? Does Japan? So you could have U.S. financing to purchase it from Australia or Japan to provide to a third country. It's something that's been done in the past with vaccines. So where the US was providing funding to India to manufacture vaccines to distribute around Southeast Asia, I don't see why that can't be applied to food, which is a much more prevalent issue right
0: now. What do you think is the reason that the market isn't correcting itself for food? Why do you think we need the quad to really step in and subsidize this stuff?
1: right now because there's there's so many external shocks to the market and no one really knows what the production is going to be like i mean you've got you you're losing ukrainian wheat from the market you're also losing ukrainian sunflower oil i mean india's under pressure and actually all of south Asia's under pressure because they rely heavily on edible oils to cook and ukraine is one of the largest producers of sunflower oil it's actually ukraine's largest export to india so the uncertainty regarding that the uncertainty regarding yields for this upcoming year based on all the inclement weather that we've had and there's also speculation about where traders are trying to predict what the prices will be so i think there are a lot of factors that have gone into play about why the market has not settled out yet settled yet
2: where do you think things go from here? Like, how did the protests resolve? Where, where are we headed? Are things about to get worse before they get better?
1: I think they are about to get worse, um, primarily because in Sri Lanka right now, I mean, the protesters' main demand is that the president go. He has shown no signs of stepping down, and the prime minister was essentially sacrificed to protect the president. He's agreed to some of the demands, but the main demand is that he goes. and. I don't see that happening right now. Where I fear this happening is that now that violence has been used, the president will use this as a justification to use the police and military more willingly and use it to kind of crush dissent a little bit. So that is one scenario which could happen. The thing is, I don't think that that's going to break the protesters' resolve. They have made it clear that they will not step down until Gota steps down so I think we're in for a prolonged stalemate there. The other big issue is that no political leader has stepped up to fill the void. So if Gota goes fine, but who next? The opposition has not settled on a compromise candidate who can kind of effectively fill that void. And you also have the question of the IMF negotiations. If there is no government in place, who is able to negotiate with the IMF, with your creditors to gain that debt relief. So one of the things Sri Lanka needs to do immediately is appoint a legal and technical advisory team to engage with creditors on debt restructuring. That should be enough to unlock an IMF program, but right now the IMF is also in a waiting moment because no one knows who the government is, who's going to represent the government in the next couple of weeks. And again, like the opposition, I think, has not been able to step up and take advantage of this and show to the people why they deserve to be in power and what they will do change it. And to be quite frank, what the Rajapaksas have done, even if they go, they've laid a very, very big political minefield for whoever comes next, because they will have to deal with the economic crisis. And that will involve making a lot of unpopular decisions. If they want the IMF program, they will have to raise taxes. They will have to privatize SOEs. They will have to cut down the size of the government and the size of the military. So
0: those are unpopular decisions. That await whoever comes next. One thing that you mentioned earlier that I think is something interesting, maybe for our listeners, is how the issues around the Easter bombings get a little conspiratorial. How do you, as an expert in the region, think about parsing out the narrative versus the fact versus the kind of hearsay on? WhatsApp or Telegram or wherever.
1: That's a great question because all of South Asia relies on rumors. I mean, the amount of information one gets fed over Twitter, WhatsApp, etc. It's it's difficult. It is very difficult. But I think for me, what I do is I talk to a wide variety of sources on the ground here in Washington and also in third countries. So I talk to the Indians because they have a long history with Sri Lanka. So talk to them to kind of get their side, talk to people on the ground in Sri Lanka, talk to the state department, and you kind of share information with one another. And from that, you're able to piece together kind of a story of, okay, here's what I can listen to. Here's what's noisy. And here's sort of what is okay. And you kind of use that to make, to form the analysis and use that to kind of just to say, okay, I think this is what the story is. And the thing is, enough people repeated the conspiracy theories inside Sri Lanka and outside that you start to think, OK, maybe there is some credibility to it. Now, did every single elite person know and that's why they got all their kids out? Probably not. Were enough people aware that something was going to happen, that they made alternate arrangements? That is possible.
2: You mentioned the noisiness of all the information and conflicting messaging and theories that circulate whether it's on social media or messaging platforms do you have a sense of how this sort of information ecosystem on the ground is playing into how protests unfold or how information is shared have there been challenges with folks on the ground not being able to access the information they need or getting mixed reporting and and i guess like how are people sort of like sharing information and and mobilizing
1: social media is a powerful tool here i mean i would assume that people are organizing on whatsapp but a lot of these protests are happening organically and they're happening in high density areas so in colombo in gaul so i think there's a natural chain to it as well of course there is misinformation out there i mean misinformation is at the heart of a number of political campaigns in south asia this is not restricted to sri lanka alone i mean misinformation is used in India. It's used in Pakistan. It's used by the ruling party, ruling parties in all countries to kind of feed their own per- preferred narrative. But I think that's what's made these protests so that they've remained peaceful and that they've been so effective is because it's an organic protest. It's not something that was sponsored by a politician or funded by an activist. It's a, it's people expressing their frustration at the government and others joining them on the ground to do so.
0: Let's pivot to other areas in the region. Pakistan, as you mentioned earlier, recently pushed out Imran Khan and has a new government. Can you sort of tell us what the impact of that has been on Pakistan, especially in this pivotal moment for the economy in in Southern Asia? Absolutely. I mean, Pakistan's
1: economy is in very poor shape. They only have about $10 billion in foreign exchange, and they're trying to negotiate with the IMF for resumption of the program. So where where did this kind of start off? Former Prime Minister Imran Khan came to power with support of the military. He was the military's preferred candidate. It was seen as this hybrid regime where he would execute kind of domestic a- actions, and the military would take care of foreign affairs the thing is though is that imran khan kind of had a series of missteps to begin with i mean he did not take care of the of the economy he should have gone to the imf a familiar refrain across south asia should have gone to the imf immediately but instead he went to turkey saudi arabia china and malaysia to seek the financing to try to avoid doing so saudi arabia gave him a, a deferred oil payment but china did not give him the money that he wanted because he was an unknown entity to them, despite him being a creature of the military. He was an unknown to them because when President Xi Jinping went to Pakistan, wanted to go to Pakistan to launch the China-Pakistan economic corridor, Imran Khan led anti-government, anti-corruption government protests, which forced the cancellation of Xi's, uh, President Xi's visit to Pakistan. And what had also happened is that the military thought this experiment would work because he was their selected candidate. So they exiled Nawaz Sharif to London. Nawaz Sharif being the former prime minister, they confined the Pakistan People's Party to Sindh, which is one of the provinces in Pakistan, and PPP is one of the other opposition parties. However, Imran Khan's inability to get the economy going again, this is a great example of what what has happened in Pakistan, is that the State Bank of Pakistan governor just resigned after his three-year term was up. In his tweet, he said, I'd like to say thank you, to the five finance ministers and six finance secretaries I, I worked with over my three years. That gives you an example of how chaotic Pakistan's economy was. Within a three-week period, they had three finance ministers. So they had Hafiz Sheikh. When he didn't win a Senate seat, they went to Hamad Azhar. They replaced him in two weeks with Shah Qatrin. So it, it was a mess. But the big thing, though, is that the inability to handle the economy and handle inflation gave an opening to the opposition party, so the Pakistani Muslim League Nawaz and the Pakistan People's Party, to say to the army, throw your support to us, and we will do things better. And there was a falling out between General Badra, the chief of army staff, and Imran Khan. And this crack was evident when General Bajra tried to transfer the director general of ISI, the Pakistani intelligence service. He tried to make him the core commander in Peshawar, and Imran Khan refused to sign off on that order. Now, he refused to sign off because Lieutenant General Faiz Hamid was widely seen as the guy who orchestrated his victory. And the incoming DGISI was not seen as someone who was particularly fond of the PTI, but rather, PTI being Imran Khan's party, but rather had ties to the PPP and Synth. So that sort of unnerved Imran, and he refused to sign off on the transfer order and that was the first real evidence that there was a fracture between him and general bajwa other fractures emerged including imran's decision to go to moscow on the day that the invasion that the russian invasion of ukraine was was launched everyone was advising him don't do that he still did that he also took on a very ardent anti-american tone which unnerved the military, which has close ties to the American defense establishment. And General Bajra also said, Hey, we don't agree with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He said it's a Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is pretty momentous for a country in South Asia, which has sought to build ties with Russia. So there were a number of these breaks between Imran Khan and the military. Ultimately, there was a political, a constitutional crisis where the vote for no confidence was supposed to happen. But then the president dissolved parliament and called for fresh elections, which was illegal now that the vote of no confidence had been called. So that was a test for Pakistan's democratic institutions. Ultimately, they held strong. The vote of no confidence happened. And Imran Khan was the first premier to be ousted from office due to no confidence vote. Now, remember, I was talking about the political minefield laid for the Rajapaksa successes. It's the exact same thing in Pakistan. I mean, the similarities are uncanny. Because one of the things that Imran Khan did is he introduced subsidies on petroleum and electricity, which caused the IMF program to go off track. So far, the new government has not shown the political will to increase those prices, even though they need to. In doing so, that will unlock more money from the IMF. But we're at a situation where you have the finance minister saying, We need to do this. You have the prime minister saying, No, we're not going to do this. And you have Pakistan's friends. Saudi Arabia and China, encouraging them to go to the IMF to restart that program because they don't want to bail out Pakistan. They want to see them implement the reforms and become less reliant on friendly finance.
2: I want to go back to the Imran Khan's visit to Moscow and what the reaction was, both among Pakistanis at home, but also the sort of public perception in the international sphere I want to go back to Imran Khan's visit to Moscow. The timing was obviously at a critical moment. What was the public perception of that visit, both among Pakistanis at home, but also in the public sphere and the, the international community? So
1: the international community, as you can imagine, the reception was very poor. And there's actually something I forgot to mention that I'll mention in a second. Within Pakistan, I think there was a split in the popular opinion. Imran Khan supporters, known as Insafians, they were very much in favor of it. They see it as Pakistan is being invited by one of the largest countries in the world, a G3 country, so to say, and we can't afford to alienate potential partners at a time when we ourselves are being alienated. And Pakistan, I think for the younger crowd, they see the alignment with Russia and China as being a part of Pakistan's national interests. So if you look at polling data, there is still actually a very negative perception of the U.S. in Pakistan. That's actually part of how Imran Khan came to power and has been a huge part of his narrative to kind of stay relevant is this anti-Americanism. Within some of the community, there was a uh, saying like, look, we can't turn this down. For those who are not affiliated with the PTI, they were of the opinion that this was a bad idea because what do you gain from it? Russia, of course, has had strong ties to India for a number of years. And while, yes, I mean, Pakistan wanted to get maybe military weapons from Russia or oil, neither of those were going to be viable because, A, there's no pipeline going from Russia to Pakistan. And if even without the sanctions, it would take a while for a tanker to go from from Russia to Pakistan. Secondly, Pakistan's refineries are not set up to refine Russian oil. So there was no point to, that, to it from that perspective. So besides just trying to thumb his nose in the face of the U.S., there really wasn't a reason for Imran Khan to go to Russia. Now, the visit to Russia has triggered a new amount of anti-Americanism in Pakistan because, and this is actually one of my favorite things right now, is that Imran Khan is blaming the State Department and the Biden administration for conspiring to overthrow his government. And the basis of this was a meeting between Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, Donald Liu, and the outgoing Pakistani ambassador to the US, um, Ambassador Assad Khan, where Assistant Secretary Liu expressed the US's displeasure with Imran's visit to Russia, saying that, look, it could affect our future relationship. And Imran has been very annoyed with the Biden administration because President Biden has not called Imran Khan, did not. Call Imran Khan, and he took that as a very personal affront, especially after the warm reception he got in the Trump White House. So, this then became twisted into a conspiracy theory of a letter being sent by Ambassador Khan, where, according to the PTI supporters, was proof that the U.S. was, because the U.S. disagreed with Imran Khan's policies, they decided to execute a coup, a coup led by a mid a ranking State Department bureaucrat. Makes sense. So, Part of what has been seen as Imran Khan's visit to Russia is that it was sticking his, poking the eye of the U.S. because he hadn't been given the appreciation and gratitude that he expected.
0: So it seems to me that we've hit on two different countries with a similar problem of governments coming into power, doing things that the population likes, cutting taxes. You know, subsidies, et cetera, and then getting into an economic mess that they can't bail themselves out of. What is a path towards a more sustainable level of development for these countries that have come from developing to maybe middle income or to break out from middle income to high income without ending up flirting with these semi authoritarian figures? or ending up in such a debt problem that it just all collapses.
1: So I think there are two things that need to happen. I mean, on the reform side, for example, one thing that Pakistan has consistently struggled with is expanding the tax base. And by expanding the tax base, I mean income tax filers. Every Pakistani pays tax in the form of goods and services tax on the products they buy. However, on the income tax filing, there is a huge mismatch of people who have registered tax numbers and those who actually file their income taxes. So Pakistan's inability to expand the revenue base has been one of the major reasons it consistently has to go back to the IMF because it has to spend so much money on debt repayments that that does not leave any money for development because they already have a low tax to GDP base as it is. The other thing is, I mean, Pakistan has not done the necessary reforms needed to attract foreign businesses. So, one of the big issues there is that they still remain on the Financial Action Task Force gray list. There is a massive story to tell in Pakistan of the fintech revolution that's happening there. Pakistani startups are out and about, but they're not selling that story and they're not attracting investors. Companies such as PayPal cannot invest in Pakistan because of Pakistan's continued presence on the financial action task force list because of concerns of can that money be used for terrorist financing. The other thing is that Pakistan is actually very much indebted to China in terms of strategic trap there. They consistently make decisions that benefit Chinese firms, even signing the China-Pakistan free trade agreement. I remember going to Karachi and talking to a, country, to a company there. Even with subsidies given and tax incentives given by the government of Pakistan, They are not able to manufacture at a low enough cost to compete with goods imported from China. That's a huge problem for Pakistan. It, It hasn't made the necessary reforms to attract foreign investment, to attract Western investment, and create jobs in the country. For Sri Lanka, one of the big issues for them is the human rights issues. Besides the debt issue, I mean, the Rajapaksas are not known as champions of human rights by any stretch of means. That, of course, then plays into their economy because they are heavily reliant on generalized system preferences plus from the EU, which allows for duty-free exports of textiles from Sri Lanka to the European Union. That is a threat because of their consistent human rights abuses. I mean, even in the pandemic, what they did was they did force cremation of Muslims to "quote-unquote" prevent the spread of COVID, even though there was no scientific evidence to say that cremation's prevent the spread of covid similarly in sri lanka i mean their main industries are textiles and tourism they have not done anything to attract foreign capital and instead what they've done is they've, they're in a position where they're selling off strategic assets to the indians and the chinese in order to kind of get themselves out of this debt trap so i would argue i mean sri lanka is in a position where it could it, it could become In maritime shipping route, it could attract more maritime investment. The port of Colombo is one of the most is a busy port. Industry could emerge there. It could integrate itself with with supply chains in India, but it doesn't. And same with Pakistan. I mean, this also goes to the question of regional connectivity. South Asia is the world's least connected region because of the geopolitics of the region. I think that has hampered Pakistan and its kind of economic potential.
2: How do you think U.S. policy toward Pakistan should change in light of some of these developments.
1: U.S. policy towards Pakistan has been exclusively focused on the national security outlook. For the last 20 years, it's been defined by the war in Afghanistan. And that was also the Pakistani government's, Imran Khan's understanding, is that if he were to deliver the Taliban to the negotiating table, the U.S. would be able to give Pakistan some benefits, so to say. That did not happen. I mean, the U.S. has has really tossed Pakistan aside. I would say, I mean, there has been some engagement between the Biden administration and Pakistan since coming, but not direct engagement between Biden and Imran Khan. I definitely think that the U.S. should be sending more commercial missions out to Pakistan to see kind of the potential of the country there and try to change the relationship to one focused on economics and national security, because I think that also then instead of focusing on like india pakistan tensions or pakistan's role in afghanistan yes pakistan did probably play a hand in helping destabilize afghanistan that's undoubtedly but i think for the us it needs to move beyond a national security outlook and think through what are the commercial interests in pakistan how can we aid in pakistan's development there and what are the, what are the opportunities for us businesses in pakistan and in sri lanka i mean i think there needs to be greater coordination with India, because again, US policy towards Sri Lanka has exclusively been on the human rights agenda. That is important, but I think there are, there is kind of a, a tendency in the region to feel like we don't want to be lectured to, we can go to other sources of financing and go to other countries for support. I think with Sri Lanka, it is slightly more tricky right now, because of the political and economic crisis. But I would argue that I think right now is the time for the U.S. to step up and maybe not fi- not only financial assistance, but humanitarian assistance. Send food, send medicines to Sri Lanka. Set yourself up for the post-Rajapaksa environment.
0: With that, let's move to our final segment, where we each talk about something that we've been following in the news, either political or cultural. Akil, why don't you kick us off? All right. So on the
1: cultural side, I have first off started watching Tokyo Vice at the recommendation of a lot of my friends. Due to my time living in Japan, it's it's brought back some memories. It is an excellent show. I would highly recommend it. Memories of committing
0: vice, or like <laughs> like just of the, the the setting. So at
1: my firm, I was the only gaijin on the floor. I was the only foreigner on the floor. So it was me surrounded by. lot of Japanese I my Japanese was not as good as the main characters it it brought back a lot of memories that way I mean like also like wandering around Tokyo kind of like seeing everything happening it's it's a very interesting experience and it's, it's fun to see that like replay I mean I haven't been back to Japan in almost 10 years
0: since leaving so it's I it brings back some fun memories but also some very bad memories This week, I have some food recommendations for your consideration. As someone who grew up a very picky eater, I'm sure many of you have already had these things, but if you haven't, you should. The first is a classic cocktail called the Bee's Knees. The Bee's Knees is made of gin, lemon juice, and honey syrup, but you can spice it up with other floral simple syrups like lavender or elderflower to make it even more sort of fancy and floral for your spring parties. I want to give a shout-out to the people at Busboys and Poets who made a really good one for me a few weeks ago. And then the second recommendation is tzatziki. This is a Greek yogurt dip. If you have not had it, it's amazing. I have no idea how I've made it this far in life without tzatziki. It's creamy and fresh in the best ways. It's great by itself with pita, or as part of a gyro. So grab a bee's knees and take a plate of pita and tzatziki to enjoy outside in the lovely weather we're having in the district before the mosquitoes return.
2: Grant, that's really hard to follow. That's such a fun one. Mine's on a slightly more serious note. Last week, uh, the White House announced that 20 different internet service providers, ISPs, are going to give reduced the high-speed internet plans to low-income families. It's a new program called the Affordable Connectivity Program. And it's an exciting new development because something in this space has been in the works for a long time um, as a a sort of a cornerstone of trying to bridge the digital divide for low-income households. Uh, And so the fact that they were able to get this coalition of ISPs to commit to that is a big deal probably was also needed earlier in the pandemic as people were working from home and working remotely, but it's good to see progress there and was excited to see that announcement.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really underappreciated how important it is to get internet penetration into low-income communities, both in the U.S. and especially abroad. So much of the economy runs through the internet and we sort of take it for granted the people who can get it on your phones. And, you know, when you don't have it, it's really, really tough. So definitely a really important story. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so the more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Akil at Akilberry. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the apocalypse. The three horsemen of war, plague, and famine are currently released. Keep your eyes out for pestilence coming soon. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.